the fact that somehow we have the notion that the arts aren't important today, that we can dismiss art as something rhetorical, uh, but it accommodates our whole uh, political, humanistic debate, music, dance, uh, literature, and theater. This is the stuff of life. That's Archie Shep. I'm Michael Sokol, and this is Same Wavelength, a platform where I have conversations with artists about the relationship between their creative work and our current political moment. Same Wavelength is a place where artists speak their truths. As I said, my name is Michael Sokol. Hello, Michael Sokol. Hey, Michael. Good morning, Michael. Hi, Michael. I'm a former radio DJ who wanted to start a platform where I could have open conversations with creative folks discussing how they're processing what's going on right now politically and talk with artists about how they choose to use their platforms during these divisive and confusing times. Archie Shep is my guest on this episode of Same Wavelength. My name is Archie Shep. This is the ninth and final episode of season one of the podcast, and I'll give you a little preview of season two at the end of this episode. Archie Shep is a saxophone player, composer, pianist, singer, politically committed poet, and playwright who's been recording music since 1960. His collaboration with John Coltrane on Coltrane's 1965 record, Ascension, really marked a turning point in jazz and avant-garde music. Throughout his career, Archie Shep has played with John Coltrane, Cecil Taylor, Sun Ra, Charles Mingus, Pharaoh Saunders, Frank Zappa, and Chuck D from Public Enemy. And he's never shied away from exploring social and political issues in his work. Archie and I sat down and talked in person last September He shares his thoughts on how we ended up in the political situation that we're in. We talk about how his political consciousness formed at a really early age as a child growing up in Florida in the 1940s. And we talk about what continues to inspire him to keep making music today at the age of 82. I really love this conversation so much. Anything that's mentioned throughout the conversation, you can find all that listed in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. And that's all there because I hope Same Wavelength can be for you like it is for me, a place of discovery. Here's my conversation with Archie Shep on Same Wavelength, and thank you so much for listening. Testing, one, two, three, testing. My name is Archie Shep. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Well, I'd love to start the conversation by opening the floor to you, asking you if there's anything on your mind, either political or creative, uh, that you want to begin with, I'd love to start there. So, Well, yeah, I've been thinking recently about ignorance and how pervasive that phenomenon seems to be ubiquitous. And I, I've come to the conclusion that ignorance is a disease like alcoholism and gambling. It's like a virus that mutates, it proliferates, and if left alone, it can destroy the social body the way a virus destroys the human body. So, so that's, uh, that's been of concern to me, that we're being destroyed by ignorance. Our society has been dumbed down to the extent that people are much more willing to uh, 
to accept what they're given and uh, without any uh, critical response. Yeah, and now we have an administration that discredits... That doesn't even care. That doesn't care about education and art and science and the environment, (laughs) which, of course, just feels like a tactic to continue this dumbing-down process. Um, Do you think a figure like Donald Trump was sort of eventual... That we would, you know, with this gradual dumbing down. Inevitable. It's a reaction to the dumbing down. Uh, I can remember during the presidential debates, uh, one of the things that shocked me was uh, when uh, the current president said that uh, political correctness is not an essential part of uh, our political debate. I, I thought he would, would have been immediately criticized for that, but in fact, he was not. He, and he began to, this became a part of his dialogue, that it's no longer important to, to, to be respectful of other people's culture, the other people's ideas. How long do you think this dummy down process has been going on for? Oh, I, I, I think it began with the Enlightenment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because uh, uh, the Enlightenment speaks for a, a burgeoning middle class, a, a bourgeoisie, but we have never thought about, thought in a, from a global perspective. It's, it's not only important that we in the West are uh, making progress, but uh, we should be concerned with the entire world. For example, recently with the Ebola uh, outbreak, it became clear that, that you can't contain a, a disease on a continent because with air travel and so on today, uh, transportation, roads, infrastructure, diseases travel uh, uh, just the same way that ignorance does. That, uh, thousands of people die in Africa, but eventually that will be brought here to, to where we are. And it doesn't have to be Africa. It could be Asia. could be here. It could uh, be Puerto Rico. It could be Puerto Rico. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, uh, and that's interesting how that went down recently. The uh, Complete disregard and lies, yeah. Yes, and they were hiding the, the real figures, uh, the uh, relating to the people who died in that catastrophe. I know, it's, it, yeah, it's totally unconscionable. Yeah. So given this centuries-long absence of a global perspective, do you think that this moment that we find ourselves in right now with our current administration's nationalism and America First mentality, do you feel like there's an unprecedented urgency to this moment right now? Oh, it's a critical moment, and... Uh, as we watch the North Pole melt and the South Pole melt, the, the, the entire Earth is in, in a process of, uh, at least our environment, is, is disintegrating. And, and we're, we're adding to that. We're, this, is, this is a, a frightening, uh, terrifying, in fact. It seems to me that there's something oxymoronic about our life that... That Homo sapiens, uh, we credit ourselves with being smart. 
but we're in, in the process of destroying our very environment. And uh, I think our, our survival is, uh, is now uh, in question. Especially when the most powerful man in the world is an idiot. think that this urgency and and also this ignorance that you're talking about do those things change the way that we as a society interact with art and given the fact that you've been making political and social statements with your work since the 60s do you see that um having changed over time like the way we like the things that we expect from our art and and also the way that we we receive it so i think ignorance is uh the opposite of art. So we can see with what's happening today, like the National Endowment of the Arts and things that are very important to the continuation and our uh, enjoyment of, of life on an intellectual, cognitive level. Those things are being uh, dismissed. Uh, the fact that somehow we have the notion that these things aren't important today, that we can dismiss art as something rhetorical, uh, music, dance, uh, literature, and uh, theater. This is the stuff of life. It accommodates our whole uh, political, humanistic debate. And uh, the 60s was a, a, a much more open period, maybe because it was the uh, epoch of the Kennedys. Everything was, at that point, uh, in a process of change. Because we, during the 60s, uh, uh, we, were, we were able to give voice to, to our frustrations, not only blacks and minorities, but, but uh, white youth. Do you not feel like we are able to give voice to those frustrations Oh, in this I don't moment? think so today. How we're almost in, in, an, in an epoch, of, a period of McCarthyism. Uh, I mean, one can easily be called a traitor today uh, if, if, if you don't express the proper attitude towards patriotism. And uh, during the 60s, I wrote a play which was done off-Broadway, originally titled... The communist, right. but it was uh, changed. The Junebug graduates tonight, yeah, right? The communist was a little too. Uh, we got a Rockefeller. Well, we got a Rockefeller grant to do it, and uh, the director thought that that might be a little extreme. That it, uh, so we did change the the title. Yeah. You know, I was looking at that play the other day, and and, and I thought, you know, it, it's probably it would probably be too extreme too radical mm -hmm. to be produced today without my uh, being uh, receiving death threats and uh, uh, maybe being uh, threatened with going to prison for treason. Uh, as, as I was looking at the play, uh, at one point there, uh, there are sharp criticisms of America. 
This is the character named yeah, America. In fact, yeah. she's, it's an allegory. Yeah. And the, the character is a woman, a white woman, and uh, there, there are sharp exchanges between the black boy and Junebug, yeah. Junebug and, and his lover, who is America. Uh, and uh, I, I think. Whose father is Uncle Sam. Whose father is <laughs> Uncle Sam. Yeah. I think all, all that uh, satire would, would be lost. On, on much of today's audience. How often are you practicing saxophone these days? Well, it depends. Some days I may practice four or five hours. Some days, mostly, if, if I get two hours in them, yeah. I consider that good. Do you find that your writing um, reflects the ti- like the times and what's going on in this moment? Well, I write from my feeling. How uh, I give the songs titles that frequently have social implication, but uh, the conception of the song comes from whatever I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess with that, I mean, is it, there's anger, but it's not all anger. Well, uh, I, I don't write music from the point of view of anger. But, uh, in, in fact, violence and anger, I, I think, uh, are anathema to the creative process. One can, one can be provoked by this, you could say to anger, but... It should never become so more anger than it is the, the, the sense that you want to change a condition that you find uh, is not uh, correct or just or honest. Yeah, retaining hopefulness. Yeah, right? I, well. Or, or agency, I guess. Ho- right? Hopefulness, I don't know, but uh, you're trying. Uh, it's the best that one can do. Hope, uh, there's not much place for optimism, but we try to uh, to hold on to that feeling that somehow if we, we try, we, we're going to change uh, things for the better. Hmm. Now, I, I, we're not given a great deal of reason for, for optimism, at a time when uh, uh, many gains that were made 50 years ago are being rolled back. I mean, uh, 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 voting rights and so on, uh, gerrymandering and uh, people being, uh, um, who had the vote suddenly now being excluded. Yeah, voter suppression. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, like the Electoral College which seems to be carried over from the Civil War, that we're still in that war, and we haven't resolved it. Until we do, I think America's in a very bad place. Does it surprise you? I mean, are you... What do you, what do you make of the fact that we're seeing an increase in acts that are... are charged and fueled by white supremacy, racism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, um, and, and there's this emboldening 
and uh, enabling. Yeah, enabling. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, if you look at Charlottesville, Virginia, yeah. that that was a shocking event. Uh, 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 Jews will not overcome us, and uh, swastikas here in America. This is the country that fought Hitler. We fought the Second World War. When Dr. King was living, we fought the, the fight. James Baldwin, I thought we had established the fact that I am not your Negro. And here I find, 50 years later, we're making, raising the same argument. Seems to me I have a sense of deja vu, which is tragic. That, that uh, the world seems to move uh, not like Einstein said, in a constantly evolving, uh, expanding. Uh, but, it, but it's cyclical. Constant. It's <laughs> cyclical. Yeah. S I C K, clico. <laughs> we were living in a fantasy that we were past all of this stuff when in fact all of this hate actually just never went away and was bubbling under the surface the entire time and it was convenient for us to not be confronting it for a while Um, and also the fact that we had an African-American president in Obama do you think we were living in a fantasy that we had resolved the Civil War and that we were kind of living under this illusion uh, of a post-racial America yeah absolutely and I think he added to that illusion he he, uh the man that we had elected on the basis of, of his argument that we needed to change and that things could be better actually failed in that. And uh, I, I think it, it gave more grist to the uh, reactionary mill that uh, by refusing to, to come out and, and when he saw racism to call it what it was. And you don't think he was as outspoken as he could have been? No, and uh, when when you it's not only that. For example, you had one year. I think there were twelve hundred youth killed on the streets in Chicago. It equaled uh, uh, the amount of deaths in Iraq. These were minority youth. Uh, at a time when Obama made a trip in uh, Connecticut, when the, uh, these young kids were murdered in the school. Obama made a trip there and Mm. wept openly for the people who suffered. But he never went to Chicago, that's interesting, to weep for people of his own uh, race. Not that that's the most important thing, but certainly he should have been sensitive. Mm. But I I, I, I think we had a, a marvelous opportunity with the election of, of an, uh, a black president. That was America coming to grips with its history, finally resolving the Civil War. But unfortunately, it w- in my opinion, it wasn't the time. I, I would have preferred a white president 
rather than uh, some historical uh, breakthrough. Uh, for the first time now, we have someone uh, of color, a minority person, who uh, largely because I felt from the beginning that he, uh, a minority president would be limited by the in- intrinsic racism that already exists. He dare not do the things that a Donald Trump seems to do with impunity. Obama, um, President Obama was a nice man, a good speaker, but I don't think he made any profound changes in the conditions, say, of the underclass, uh, even poor whites, especially poor whites, who, and I, this is what I think is remarkable, who supported, uh, he couldn't have been elected without the support of uh, a number of white people. But I don't think he did much for the people in the Ohio River Valley and the coal miners in Virginia and uh, Pennsylvania. If if his efforts had been more more obvious, I I think the, the results we wouldn't have ended up with a Donald Trump. Do you think that that inability to enact change? that you're talking about, was that a result of Obama's policy? Was that the obstructionism that he faced, combination of both? I mean, could the conditions have been better for him, and and how so? Well, they could have been. If he had started out by creating jobs instead of going for national health care, everybody needs jobs. So I think he would have had a lot more support than he eventually got by pushing for something that was very controversial and easily shot down by the white bourgeoisie, uh, uh, national health care, because uh, a, a lot of people in the middle class already have health care that they're, they're satisfied with. It's a controversial issue, but jobs and uh, creation of the, uh, rebuilding the infrastructure, roads and uh, the the water situation in Flint, Michigan, which I found uh, outrageous, that during Obama's uh, uh, tenure, he did nothing about it, though he promised to. And uh, yeah. the condition is even worse now, I can imagine. start to view things through a, a political lens? You know, when I was uh, about 10 years old, in the third, I was in third grade, my teacher gave us a, sort of a, a writing assignment in class that we should all write something about what whatever we found relevant. And uh, of course, we were very young, we wouldn't write very much. And I wrote a paper, a brief few paragraphs, about racism. And she was shocked. She says, well, where did you learn about all this black and white? And uh, I said, from my father and the man upstairs, they frequently have political arguments on, on weekends when they're not working. And I, I was really writing down to wow. what I had overheard. And uh, 
So from a very early age. Was that in Florida or Philadelphia? In Philadelphia. Philly, yeah. Would this have been the early 40s or mid Yeah, yeah. I, I think I came when uh, I was born in 1937 okay. and I came to Philadelphia around... 1945, at the age of about seven or eight. But in Florida, uh, frequently I would be with my grandmother and my aunt, who was a school teacher. Uh, frequently I, I'd hear, they would read the local newspaper, and there were a lot of racial incidents, uh, obviously, in, in Flo Fort Lauderdale, Florida at that time, around 1937, in the early 40s. And uh, I became sensitized to uh, who I was. My identity began to form uh, at a very early age because of the people who were around me, the adults who, who informed me. Were you the, the victim of, of racialized incidences in addition to it being spoken about by your family? Well, you could say I was. I mean, I could say I was... Uh, an example would be uh, in Florida, uh, my legs were covered with sores from mosquito bites. And uh, it was a phenomenon that was really quite uh, prevalent uh, in uh, the South, in the black areas. Because the black areas, uh, we were closer there to the uh, the, uh, the swamps. Right. Uh, and uh, until they invented DDT, the black communities were infested with these big black mosquitoes. Young girls with beautiful legs would be marred by mosquito bites. And uh, I can remember lying in bed. My grandmother had given, uh, because we had no doctors, uh, there was no black hospital. Uh, my legs would be swollen from the inside from infection from uh, mosquito bites I'd be lying in the heat and uh, I could see the mosquitoes big black you could see the hair on their legs as they they sort of wafted lazily in the air full of blood mm. so I, I, I was victimized by poverty and racism even long before I knew I was and I only began, began to, to talk about it to, to realize it as I got older. Mm -hmm. Is it also through your family that you got introduced to music? Well, my pop played the banjo. Oh, cool. Yeah. He played all the old songs. He was born in 1916, so yeah. uh, he was a guy who was totally consumed by music. Wow. He'd play a song like Sweet Sue. Every Sweet Sue. The, the Mills Brothers used, used to sing that. And then Moon Up High knows the reason why, sweet Sue. And the banjo was my first instrument. I remember uh, the first uh, 
song that I, uh, I I knew a few bars of it was James P. Johnson's The Charleston, which was not easy for a kid because he was making four, he was playing the four string banjo and he was making chords with all four strings. And for my small hands at the time, it was a challenge yeah. because you had to bar the whole fret with one finger and the other three would be uh, holding down different notes on the banjo. So uh, uh, when I got to Philadelphia, uh, my parents got me, uh, paid for piano lessons and clarinet lessons, and eventually I got to the saxophone when I was about 15. Wow. So how did your dad's influence in that early playing that you were doing, how do you feel like that affected your work going forward as he started playing the saxophone full-time? I think probably the most important thing that he taught me was blues. Mm. Because uh, even though I didn't know the chords to blues, I could sing blues. And uh, it was, that was very important to me when I met Lee Morgan. Mm. Uh, Lee was... Uh, uh, he agreed to help me with my horn, and uh, and up, up until that time, I hadn't had any influences other than my father. Mm. And uh, I remember we got together and we had a little jam session, and he asked me to play something. And the only saxophone player I'd heard that would be associated with jazz, per se, I, uh, I don't use that term normally, but because I, I prefer African American music. Uh, so it was Stan Getz. I, I had heard Stan's rendition of How High the Moon. So Lee Morgan uh, asked me to play for him. And I, uh, so I, I gave a very poor imitation of that. And uh, I think they tried not to laugh <laughs> <laughs> openly. So then he said, well, let's play the blues. Well, and that was the only thing that I really knew. I, I could play that just feeling. I knew what the blues was. Mm. And uh, I, I think they were rather surprised when I finished because I, I, I could play blues on, on the level that he played blues and he knew a lot about chord changes. And, and so he, he, he looked at me and he, when I finished he said, man, don't ever change. Mm. And, and from then on, Lee Morgan, when he would get little gigs himself, blues gigs, he would call me (laughs) because I knew how to play the blues. And and, uh, it it was not just an intellectual thing. It was something that I'd grown up with. Yeah. Do you feel like a lot of times, quote, jazz music and blues music, which of course is, you know, foundation for jazz. Yeah. Do you feel like those things become, uh, they get turned into academic exercises? And therefore, you know, kind of lose their their meaning or their uh, yeah, you know, the the feel behind it. Yeah, yeah. So-called jazz music is an academic has an academic uh, quality, uh, but it's all that's all uh, intellectual and academic, and that's the way young people normally learn the blues. Uh, but in the South, where I came from, it, it, it's uh, it's like the national anthem. You, you know, you some guy on the street is picking a guitar, and uh, 
you know that that C is going to go to F, because that's how the blues goes. And uh, so there are many ways to learn the blues. One is from the heart, and it tells the story, tells a story going of black people, of black suffering, of elation, of happiness, going all the way back to, to slavery and the work zone and the spiritual and eventually the evolution of blues music. So blues music uh, lives. It's not just an uh, academic uh, exercise. And some people can play it and play it rather well, but they don't have the feeling. They, 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 they don't make you laugh. They don't make you cry like, like Bo Diddley or B.B. King or, some of, the, some of the early blues people. Yeah, Howlin' Wolf, Lane and Hopkins. Yeah, Howlin' yeah. Wolf. Yeah. 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 Do you think a lot about your forebears? And do they continue to be a, a source of, of inspiration? And, oh, and, absolutely. And you draw from that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and in fact... I begin there with my ancestors. Well, Coltrane was an ancestor, so was my father. Uh, Albert Isla was an ancestor. So uh, ancestors don't just have to go back three or four centuries of, <laughs> like that. They, they can be more recently uh, evolved and have more recent contact with your present experience. Yeah, I love that you mentioned Albert Eiler. That record of his spiritual unity totally blows me away. Yeah. Tremendous man. Yeah. There's an interesting story told by this guy, uh, the violinist, Mike White. Yeah. He, he was, uh, uh, I think he was made a jam, he talks about the jam session he made with the Island Brothers. Uh, Albert and Don, his brother. And he said when he got to their house, they didn't have any food, no prospect of, of work. It was rather depressing. So Albert said, uh, let's play. And so at that point, I mean, most guys think of playing a song or something. And he said, let's play Hunger. Wow. And uh, that's a whole... Uh, I mean, you, you might imagine that coming out of an African village six centuries ago uh, where, where they're playing to the gods for the rain. He's, and, and, and that's how he looked at music, his experience. And uh, I, I think he did a lot to change the musical landscape, uh, to, to take away some of the academic trimmings and to, and to bring black music to another level of, of life experience. I, I can see why he impressed John Coltrane and a lot of people who heard him because uh, he was so uh, unique. I know you played a bunch with John Coltrane. Did you did you ever get a chance to play with Albert Eiler? 
Well, we played on a concert together in New York in the 63, 64, yeah. maybe. And uh, I, that was really uh, oh, shocking. I hear that. That was... Uh, <laughs> Oh boy, we we played at a place uh, in New York called uh, the Jazz Gallery, and uh, I had met Albert, but I never heard him. Mm. And uh, he, uh, he he was had this it's twinkle in his eyes, very unusual looking man with a, a, a pair of eyes that were quite beautiful. He twinkling, and he he had a sense of confidence that. Uh, was immediately, uh, one could feel it and observe it. Mm. Anyway, by chance that night, uh, we were both billed to play together on a Monday night. It was an off night, and yeah. so they had players who weren't well known. And this night, uh, Albert and I were playing opposite each other, the Jazz Gallery, which was an old art gallery, which had a long corridor and the paintings would hang on the wall. And at the end of the corridor, there was a room which they made into, that was where the music was played. They put a bandstand. And at the front was uh, another room, smaller, where they had a bar. And uh, because the, the bandstand was so far from uh, the actual entrance, they had an intercom with a sort of a television. Uh, so you could see the, the players in the back uh, who were performing. So I played with uh, uh, Edgar Bateman and Bob Cunningham. That was a trio with no piano. I had been very influenced by Sonny Rollins had stopped using piano. And uh, that night I played with just a drummer, a drum and bass. When I got off the bandstand, I felt we played pretty well. It swung to me. and. Uh, so I went through the corridor to the front of the uh, club where there was uh, people like there were people like Bob Thompson, the painter, and Amiri Baraka. All, all these guys used to come. They all lived downtown. And they would show all, all my friends, the painters, the writers. And so we were there comfortably drinking at the bars, Albert and uh, Sonny Murray and... Uh, Don Cherry and uh, Gary Peacock were going up on stage. And uh, I was about to put my drink, we were toasting at the bar, and uh, suddenly there was something like an explosion. And the Baraka says to me, what was that? I says, I, I don't know. And then it happened again. And I looked up at the screen, it was Albert. <laughs> and he had this sound that I, it was the, uh, it was the biggest sound that I, that I'd ever heard. Uh, there was only like four people on stage, Only right? four, yeah. and, and he, this was totally, the, the note he hit was not maybe in the scale, I don't know. But uh, And they went on, and uh, boy, they, they uh, at a tempo that, that uh, was outlined by Sonny Murray. Now, Sonny had recorded with me and played with me, but for the first time I heard... I could hear his concert because they were, Albert seemed to be playing in a tempo faster than any tempo I'd, I'd ever heard. And Sonny had, he had it completely had it because he didn't use the bass drum as much as he used the cymbals. He played off the top of the cymbal. 
So the symbols gave gave it the piece a sense of uh, motion mm. that you don't just get off the uh, the, the the drum, the uh, snare, and so on. He didn't use it, the snare that much, and uh, they, they finished sort of a terminal ending. Pop, no fanfare, you know, no amen, no pop. That was it. Uh, I'll tell you, that night I didn't sleep so well because I had never heard the saxophone played like that. He broke all the rules. Everything that you were told not to do in school, <laughs> he did that. <laughs> and he played notes way uh, that Coltrane, what uh, I admired about him a great deal, was he played the harmonics over the high F, the saxophone. But he usually played them in a, a serial. Da, 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 da. But Albert's was completely, it was more a color. He played He played all the notes up there, and uh, he, he did have an imp make an impression on my approach to the saxophone, uh, I, because I, I realized that I could break the rules too, and uh, liberating. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I, I was free, and, and I never had been. I mean, because I had such, and still do have such profound respect for John and always tried to play within the parameters that was established, that he established. But uh, after hearing Albert, uh, I realized there were no parameters. <laughs> a certain moment when you started to be comfortable with your own voice as a saxophone player and uh, really feeling like you were playing as yourself? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember uh, years ago when uh, Bill Dixon and I had formed a group. What year was that? Oh, about 1961, 62. Yeah. And we were recording... Uh, it was a song of Leonard Bernstein. Our time and place, somewhere. It comes from West Side Story, and I—I I had been trying when we recorded it initially. I had my imitation of my Coltrane sound, and we. Each time I would hear the playback, I was more depressed because I, I wasn't getting anywhere near that that sound like train playing. Uh, it, that, that wasn't what I was coming back to me. So on, on the final take, I decided just to play like me, <laughs> and which eventually I understood to be closer to guys like Ben Webster and Herschel Evans and. Guys that I thought maybe weren't as hip as, as John Coltrane. <laughs> but I heard the recording back and my sound, and I, I, I was really, I, I was shocked. I said, gee, is that what I sound like? And, uh, and that's, so when I heard that sound, I realized that that was me. 
it's okay to be Archie Shipp. It's okay to be Archie Shipp, even though I'll never be John Coulson. back on your career is there something that sticks out to you that you're most proud of well the struggle there's no one incident it's and not only to look it's not only a struggle I look back on but it's a struggle I look forward to that uh, I'm still engaged in uh, from from my own humble way, trying to to be a a, a, a better man, a better musician, a, a, an artist who uh, conveys a message of, of change and, and hope, and uh, and an artist who 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 holds on to the tradition. Who harkens back to what created me, as well as to what I want to create? Archie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure. so much to Archie for his time and interest in this project. Anything that's referenced throughout the conversation, you can find all that listed in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please do that. If you can rate it and review it, that really helps me reach more folks and get the word out about Same Wavelength. And if you have any friends who you think might enjoy the podcast, please share it with them. Make sure you're following the podcast on social media, on Instagram and Facebook at Same Wavelength Podcast. On Twitter, same wave pod. Follow those to get updates on season two, which I'll talk about in a minute. This conversation was edited for brevity and clarity, though I made a sincere effort to retain Archie's words and ideas in their most honest form. The music that you heard throughout the conversation was used with permission by Archie Shep and publishers. The theme music that you're hearing right now and that you heard at the beginning of this episode is an instrumental version of a song by my band Bunk called Turn the World Around. Thank you to my bunkmates, Brett and Dave, for being cool with me using the song as the theme for the podcast. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is the last episode of season one of Same Wavelength. Since I live in Los Angeles and this city is home to so many incredible artists, season two of the podcast will highlight the voices and stories of Los Angeles-based artists. We're in Skid Row, man. It's uh, 30 blocks of the most homeless populated community in America. I've been organizing here in Skid Row now and going on uh, 12 years and just started uh, painting on corners like just setting up my artwork just painting trying to change the uh, surrounding you know you ride around and see a bunch of homeless encampments but then you'll see somebody with easel painting you know changes a person's outlook my name is crucial when it comes to artwork 
known as Shozart, S-H-O-W-Z-A-R-T. I'm Lisbeth Goyman. I'm a Venezuelan bilingual writer. As an artist, I stand at the intersection between immigration and mental health. I find that poetry, it's the way I can put my incoherent thoughts on paper. Especially when depression is really, really bad, I write that shit down and whatever comes, comes, and that's my poetry. To stay updated on season two, follow Same Wavelength on social media, or you can get updates at samewavelengthpodcast.com. I'm Michael Sokol. Thank you so much for your support and for listening to Same Wavelength. Be good to yourself and be good to those around you.